Welcome to Oxpods, the podcast by students and their professors at the University of Oxford. The Middle East and North Africa are two of the most archaeologically rich regions on Earth, but due to conflict, climate change and urban expansion, archaeological sites are increasingly under threat. What can be done to protect them, and why are they so valuable? I'm Alice Hazel, a classical archaeology and ancient history student at Lady Margaret Hall, and today I will be talking to Dr Bill Finlayson, Professor of Prehistoric Environment and Society and the Director of the Amina Project, to learn more about the work being done here at Oxford and at universities across the country to record and protect the archaeology of the Middle East and North Africa. Hi Bill, welcome to Oxpods. Thank you so much for coming on today. So we are here today to talk about the project, which you're the Director of, the Amina Project, that's Endangered Archaeology in the Middle East and North Africa. And first things first, would you be able to explain what the Amina Project is? Sure. It was something that that, that was set up uh, originally by Professor Andrew Wilson, here the Professor of Roman Archaeology. Um, And it was a direct result of the news stories that you're probably aware of uh, with archaeological sites being blown up uh, in the Middle East by ISIS and Daesh and so on. So there was a feeling that something ought to be done to try and protect them. And luckily, he met somebody from the Arcadia uh, foundation who agreed to fund this project and since then it's grown uh considerably so when our partnership between durham and leicester as well so we've we've sort of working in different parts of the region and we record archaeological sites of all sorts landscapes uh, and, and so on put them onto a big open access database so everyone knows what's there and it, to help all the local departments of antiquities and government uh, heritage agencies protect their sites better. Amazing. And I have so many questions to ask about the project itself. Um, But first, I'd love to know a little bit about your career and how you came to be involved in this project. So what led you to become an archaeologist and what spiked your interest um, in the Middle East and North Africa? (laughs) Well, first off, I spent a number of formative years being brought up in Cyprus. And I think my my father used me vicariously to follow his interests in archaeology. So I was taken around a lot of sites and I think gradually just sort of absorbed the idea that I was going to do archaeology. And uh, of course, when I did do archaeology, I naturally had an interest in in the Middle East. But I developed a, a sort of research interest in, in the transition of hunter-gatherers to farmers, and primarily actually for a long time in, in, in Scotland and Northern Europe, looking at the way things changed there. But I uh, wanted to answer various earlier questions, so that brought me to the Middle East, in particular to Jordan. Uh, and I spent a long time working in the field in Jordan and also being based in Jordan. I lived in Jordan for about 11 years running the British school there. And that sort of placed me when when the Iamina project wanted to recruit a new director. I was very familiar with their work, having dealt with the, the people on the ground at the other end, as it were, uh, and had become very interested in how, how this project developed. So that's how I got interested into archaeology and then how I came about to be in the Iamina project. Brilliant. And... Back to the project itself. So how was the project originally set up and created? Andrew Wilson set it up originally with, in particular, a guy called Bob Bewley, who um, has done a lot of aerial archaeology, mostly from helicopters uh, in in the region, particularly in in Jordan again. And he was the first director. So he had a lot of interest in in remote sensing and imagery and so on. So they worked together to set set this up. And initially, it it was entirely Oxford, as I say, it spread very quickly because of the, the amount of ground to cover to, to fr- friends and colleagues in, in, in Durham and Leicester. And since then, people have just been going through the remote sensing imagery. And most of what we do, so it can be re- replicated locally in the Middle East, we're looking at the free imagery that's available on platforms such as Google Earth and so on. So, you know, it's easy, easy access, uh, free, and that fits in with the general philosophy, both of, of Arcadia and ourselves having this open access database, the sources are uh, open access and so on. So the whole thing, 
you know, what we do when we have volunteers and so on isn't isn't to get them access to um, expensive satellite imagery. It's to train them on, on what needs to be done and how to record it and how to use the database, which is obviously quite a big beast and, and needs a certain amount of training on. And why was the Middle East and North Africa chosen as opposed to other parts of the world? I mean, you mentioned the threats of like war action, but obviously war happens all over the world. Yes, yeah, war happens all over the place. It's, I mean, I think it's fair to say that cultural heritage has probably been weaponized more in the Middle East than elsewhere. And whose fault that is, is, is a moot point, because obviously, you, you know, the, the West has attracted a lot of interest to the cultural heritage and, and therefore made it uh, a, a target for some people. And some of the heritage has been identified more as Western than as Middle Eastern as well, so that there are parts of that cultural heritage. I mean, famously in Afghanistan, of course, not so much Western, but uh, Asian with the, the Buddhas, who aren't local, but equally in, in much of the, the Western part of the area we deal with, the Roman Empire and so on. So continuing sort of for, foreign power. So it's it's become uh, uh, somewhat weaponized. But in actual fact, one of the things our work has shown is that, is that war and terrorism and things are, are relatively minor forms of damage. I mean, they can be spectacular, but they're relatively minor. The biggest thing is it's a, it's a very intensely developing part of the world. It's one of the areas where population has risen. It's affected by climate change quite uh, dramatically because it's on the, the very edge of what's, uh, you know, farmable and so on. So it's... It, it's a sort of a, a boundary area, so it gets affected a lot by development. Development's very active. There's a lot of funding in some parts of it. Um, and the biggest threats are things like agriculture, developing agriculture, which plows up things. Uh, the irrigation schemes, for it, including the big dam projects and so on, all change the landscape enormously, much more than a bomb going off on an archaeological site does. So those are the, the really big threats for us and, you know, urban development as, as everywhere. So Yeah, of course. And do you think these threats are going to change over time? Do you think, you know, in the next few years, you're going to see climate change becoming a bigger problem? Or do you think they're going to stay quite consistent over the next few years? I think what, what, what we're seeing already is that the climate change thing is going to get worse. And it has all sorts of impacts. So there are some areas which are being abandoned. So traditional ways of farming are stopping and, and sand is effectively covering the landscape as it blows in. People's, I mean, it's not just the physical cultural heritage, it's the intangible stuff, you know, people's ways of living and, 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 and local accents and dialects and so on are disappearing as people gradually move more and more into urban centres and so on. So there's a lot of change happening indirectly, as it were, from from, from climate change. And then there's there's also the, the direct impacts. I mean, sea level change clearly has an effect all around the Mediterranean, up the Persian Gulf and so on, and is affecting a lot of, a lot of archaeological remains. And we have a sister project um, working with us um, of, of marine archaeologists, the Maria Project, working from Southampton, the University of Ulster. And they're specifically focusing on that, that, that dimension. And there are other things like increasing uh, forest fires and so on, uh, which I think people don't always realise, but there are bits of the Middle East which are still quite wooded, and they've always suffered very much from forest fires, and now that's getting worse and worse and becoming a, a bigger and bigger threat. So there's all sorts of things going on that are related to climate change. And you can even backtrack a lot of the conflict to climate change effects as water becomes more short and... Again, you know, populations uh, move around and, and people no longer have traditional ways of living, which all increases conflict, if you like. Yeah, fascinating. And what has the project achieved so far? So you've already mentioned that you satellite imagery. Has anything been found? And how much of the Middle East have you covered? Well, it's it's, it's a huge area. Uh, also, if you include the, the big North African countries as well, we've I think recorded in the database something like 180,000 archaeological sites so far, uh, and, and a lot more, you know, sort of bibliographic references and so on. 
Some of that's from the remote sensing. Some of it's also uh, one of the useful things is going back to things like 19th century maps and so on and picking up what they were recording as archaeological sites, things that may no longer be readily visible now and, and, and looking to see if they still exist or, or whatever. So there's different elements to it. Some of the sites are major. Some of them are substantial in that they're whole landscapes, uh, old agricultural landscapes and so on. A lot of them are very mundane and everyday, but that's it's a sort of archaeology that that's very interesting for research purposes. And also, to be honest, it's often the sort of archaeology that's more interesting to the local population. It's their heritage rather than, than some big monument off in the, in the capital sort of thing. So we're, we're recording a lot of, a lot of that sort of information. And we've expanded our boundaries a little bit. So we're, you know, we, we do work into Iran and a little bit into Afghanistan and so on. Um, and up into the Caucasus more uh, uh, as well now. So. It's it's a growing project, uh, and, and the funders. I mean, I think it, this, you can see the success of it, and the funders are now funding other teams to work uh, pretty much across the entire world, except for you know West Europe and North America, where you know heritage is already quite well covered by government agencies. So wow, yeah, that's amazing, and and I'm interested to know how the process works. So do you take written sources and think there might be something there, then have a look on the satellite imagery, or do you just scour the satellite imagery to see if there's something there? Um, it depends on the area. Uh, if we're working, say, in, in northern Saudi Arabia, where there's not been a huge amount of work, and also the landscape is, is very open and not heavily developed, then we tend to go straight to the satellite imagery, for example. If we're somewhere where there's a long history of archaeological research, uh, then we'll go through all the existing records uh, and use the remote sensing to supplement that uh, and fill in the gaps. And also one of the important things we're doing because it's about protecting the endangered archaeology is we do condition assessments. So one of the things we can do from the remote sensing is go to a, a site that was maybe recorded 40 years ago and see how it's preserved and is it is it under threat is it being damaged has it gone uh, or is it in 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 mint condition whatever so so we combine all these different sources together uh, a lot of the ground checking we were going to do didn't happen because of covid um, so obviously that had an impact but the bulk of that we're trying to do with the local heritage agencies we work very closely with the local heritage agencies in in many of the areas we're working uh, and that's been made possible particularly by a fund from Department of Culture, Media and Sport and the British Council, who had a cultural protection fund. And we've been very fortunate with their funding uh, and been able to train a lot of the state archaeologists in these countries. Uh, and, and at the moment, we're in the process of setting up local databases, effectively sort of clones of our own database, so that they have their own for heritage management. And also they can put into it things that might be confidential, like land ownership and this sort of thing that they don't want to put into our open access database. So without sort of compromising our own principles of open access, they can use the same form of database and the same data, um, but for their own heritage management purposes. So that, that's that's an important way that the project's grown over the, the years. And is what can be done to protect the archaeology? You've mentioned the local heritage sites. Is that the main thing, is getting the local people involved to ensure that they're protecting these places? Well, I personally think lo lo local community involvement is, is often key. I mean, most, most people around the world are, are interested in their local heritage and their history. And if they know about it, they're much more sympathetic to uh, protecting it. Of course, we, we follow the same principle as here in Britain, where you, know, you, you balance uh, the heritage with a development need. 
Um, and you know, it's it's not absolutely sacrosanct protecting the heritage, but if it's going to be destroyed by a development, you at least record it and you know what what's been lost. But yes, I mean, and and where there is important stuff, we've been working with um, some of the government agencies to uh, do again the sort of thing you do in Britain before a development is actually a, a survey of a particular area. So, you know, I think what you asked before. How, how do we approach things? And part of it is just survey where we take an area and survey it. Part of it is where we know there's going to be a development. And um, we do a specific study focused on that area of development so people know what's there in advance of that development. And with that sort of approach, if you work early enough, it's often possible just to persuade a developer to move slightly to, to save the archaeological site if there's no desperate need to work in exactly that, 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 that corner of the landscape. Yeah, that's amazing. And if you're able to share, is there anything particularly remarkable that's sort of been discovered and protected as a result? It, it, it's mostly a continuous effort. But, but I mean, the, the, you know, the different bits of the, the project have had um, particular success stories. So, so um, in, in, in Morocco, our, the team from Leicester have been working to uh, develop an archaeological park to protect some of the, 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 the sites they've, they've been uh, working on there. We do find new things. One of the things that's very dramatic from from the air and from space are things called desert uh, kites, which are great big uh, hunting traps for gazelle, uh, which migrate down the sort of edge of the the desert. And in about sort of nine to seven thousand years ago, people hunted them by building these these huge traps, which have long long stone walls to to to, to guide the gazelle in gazelle like following straight lines you see the the ear of various sorts doing this today with pipelines and so on um so they're guided in from a long way away into a, into a a hunting zone at the end so you're 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 seeing a sort of an industrialization of hunting at the same time as people are learning to farm in in, in the wetter areas and we've been picking up uh, extensions to the distribution of these uh, and and mapping them there's a whole chain of them that comes all the way down from syria through jordan into arabia uh, and in particular in northeast arabia we've been picking up quite a number of these so it's very useful looking at how this pattern works because at that point they're actually swinging more towards iraq than than the than the mediterranean coast um which which is quite useful for us understanding how people learn to use these desert areas. Um, oh, that's incredible. Do you think that the research being done in the Amina project um, is actually going to shape some of the future of archaeology, or do you think it's building on what we know already? Well, all, all research, obviously, is, is building on what we know. Um, but I think, yes, I mean, a lot of what we're finding is, is new and additional. Um, and one of the other hopes um, that we're beginning to play with in, in, some, in the research side of things is looking at the sort of archaeological equivalent of big data research, where we, you know, with this large database, we can now ask questions of it and, and looking at the big landscape and settlement patterns and how people have adapted and moved. And that, of course, works well with um, big issues like past climate change and how people have adapted to that and been affected by it. Um, so I think one of the impacts of it is going to be new approaches to sort of landscape archaeology, where, where we're looking right across a huge area. Uh, and we've got what might not be big big data in, in terms of some some of the, the, the scientific big data analysis, but for something like archaeology, it's it's huge. Yeah, that's really cool. And it's a big question, but I think, you know, your whole project is around protecting archaeology. Um, for a lot of the population, they don't probably think about archaeology in their day-to-day -day lives, but why should we protect archaeology? 
There's a lot of answers to that. One of which is, is I think uh, people do think about archaeology more than they realize a lot of the time. Uh, in, in, the, in the Middle East and, and North Africa, it's often particularly important because these are young states and, and, and they're looking at their own heritage. They're working out what ties them together, what binds them and so on. One of the aspects of that is their own cultural heritage and their own history. And, and they, they look back to the past to, to, to look for, for, for things to, to unify them today. I think, you know, from, from a researcher's point of view, you want to protect it just because of the information that's there and the, and the fascinating insight you get into, into human history and so on. But I, you know, I think a lot of people are interested. I mean, you know, the, the, the economies of many of these Middle Eastern countries, the ones that don't have oil, Archaeology is, is a major part of their economy. So someone like Jordan, the biggest uh, earner of foreign currency, I think, at the moment is tourism. For, and the tourism is based around archaeological sites, um, you know, Petra and so on, these things. So it's important economically, it's important culturally, uh, and it's important for our, our history. So I think there's a lot of big picture reasons, but you come down to the local communities and most of them, you know, that that people have an interest in their past. I mean, I've worked in various places in the world from, you know, old mining communities in the south of Scotland who were having their their, their, their landscape destroyed from new open cast mining. And they were all very concerned that, that the history of old deep mining was was kept and so on. And people people like their heritage. They like what ties them to the to the, to the landscape and the ground. Uh, and I think there's, there's always been a surprising amount in a way of, of, of support for, for archaeology and its protection. The the difficulties where where things are found by surprise too late and and all the plans have already been made and investments made and so on that it's can be hard to save it but um, yeah i think the work you're doing is really important and i completely agree if anyone is inspired by this podcast to either learn more about archaeology or support the project or get involved in any way they can is there anything you could recommend to them if you're interested in specifically in what we do um we have volunteers and we have student placements and so on uh work, working with us uh, and you can find out about that by looking us up uh, on, on the university's website. If you're interested in archaeology generally, it depends a lot on, on what what stage you're at in your life. You know, you, you know, uh, you know, are you choosing what subjects to do as a, your degree in, and so on. In which case, obviously, archaeology is a, a potential choice there. But there are there are lots of ways into archaeology. There's all sorts of volunteering, uh, not just with our project, but on excavations around the country in museums and so on. So there's there's a lot of um, routes in, um, and and of course you know the, the, there's there's usually something going on on TV or whatever about archaeology, which which helps give you a, give you a clues of of what, what might be happening in your neighbourhood. Well, thank you so much. It's been really interesting, um, and I've really enjoyed listening to what you've had to say. Thank you for listening to this episode of Oxpods. If you enjoyed it, please do recommend to a friend and check out our episodes from other channels too. To keep up to date with episode releases, to suggest ideas for new episodes, or to get involved with recording, follow us on Instagram, Twitter, or go straight to our website at www.oxpods.co.uk. Thank you.